Welcome to The Good Good Life with Jan Jones. Together, we will journey through self-discovery and fulfillment in life. Here's your host, Jan Jones. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Good Good Life. I am your host, Jan Jones, and I hope you know how excited and honored and thrilled I am that you have chosen to spend this time with me. I am really excited for you to meet my guest today, and I'm going to introduce him shortly because you are going to love all of his insights and his expertise and his perspective on a lot of topics, but... I want to know, are you awake, alert, alive, enthusiastic? Because I know I am, and I want you to claim this. You know, if you're a regular listener, what I am about to say. Something good is going to happen to me today, and something good is going to happen through me today. Now, now that you're really in your happy headspace, I want everyone to take that deep breath in and out. Oh, yes, it feels good to just release a little and just get more oxygen to our brain and be here in this moment. Because I called this show championing your life, playing to win. And I'm going to tell you, I was talking to my guest, Drew, a couple of weeks ago, and he used that phrase, playing to win. And so I can't wait. I'm going to do a little intro in just a minute. But it really got me thinking about how we all really want to put that uniform on every day, no matter what that is, that image of getting dressed for this game of life and really emerging the champion of our life, of our life story. And so there are so many skills that we can use to do this. And I thought that was just a great title for my guest today. So I don't want to leave you hanging any longer. I am going to read a little bit about Drew Bird. I am so honored that he is here. And I'll tell y'all, he lives all over the world. And so I had to ask him where he was today. He is coming to us from Canada, but he's all over the place and the U.S. So let me give you a little bit about Drew. Drew Bird, author of The Leader's Guide to Emotional Intelligence, founder of the EQ Development Group and accredited EQ Master Trainer, works with leaders at all levels to develop leadership capacity and effectiveness. Drew supports leaders from a range of organizations and at all organizational levels, coaching and mentoring on day-to-day business issues and long-term strategic opportunities. And we all need that help, right? Just living day-to-day and then thinking big picture. 
His engaging style and depth of subject matter knowledge makes him a sought-after presenter and facilitator on a wide range and friends, I mean wide range of topics related to emotional intelligence, adaptability, leader and team effectiveness, decision-making, hardiness, and resilience. You all know we've been talking quite a bit about resilience lately, so I really can't wait to tap into some of his insights around that as well. And another topic is change and transition and effective communication. Drew holds an MA in leadership from Royal Roads University in Victoria, Canada, and an MSc in organizational psychology from the University of London, England. He is a member of the Canadian Psychology Association and the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology, which is a division of the American Psychological Association. Drew has worked directly with leaders from an array of organizations, and this is just a few of them. Vanguard Investments, Cornell University, Toronto Pearson Airport Authority, Alberta Energy Regulator, Alberta Health Services, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Wow. Drew is an invited speaker at the Conference Board of Canada's Directors College on the topic of leadership and emotional intelligence. His team of experienced consultants provide many, many services and programs. Wow. Okay. So welcome, Drew. Thanks very much, Jan. I did not realize you were going to read that whole thing. (laughs) Because it's so impressive. And I really love our listeners to know who I'm talking to. And I know after a few conversations with you, Drew, we really are only scratching the surface. Um, So I am very honored that you took the time to be with us. Now, um, tell our listeners just a little bit about you um, and your background. Yeah, thanks. Well, I really appreciate you having me and I appreciate your listeners spending some time with us as well. Um, I came to this, I came to the work that I do now around emotional intelligence and uh, self-development. My first career was in the IT world. Um, I was a network systems engineer. I used to assemble, this was back in the late 90s, and I was working in London and uh, I quite enjoyed the sort of tech world. But I came to realize that I was fascinated more by people than technology. And I moved into my first leadership role in the late 90s and and sort of from that point became fascinated in this idea of what is effective leadership, what makes an effective leader, why are some people, you know, everybody's had a bad leader, right? Everybody has a story about a bad boss at some point. And, you know, why is that? Why Why do we get into these situations or and you know there's another question is why do people get in positions of responsibility and it just yes. became really curious about all that and so when i moved to canada in the in 1999 i decided to switch my career from working with technology to working with people and there was a bit of a transition phase in there where i worked with people in technology and then now just you know just all kinds of different industries and different kinds of people 
think that is fascinating that you went from machines to human beings, right? Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and, and human being, human beings are, are much more complicated, more complex than machines. Oh. Yeah, I mean, if you think it's going to get easier when you stop working with uh, technology and starting work with people, that is not what happened. Yeah, yeah. I because I, look, I'm right there with you being in the same business as you just consulting and working with leaders. So um, never, ever a dull moment. Um, mm. So I really, you know, you and I have talked and I have shared this topic several times with other guests that have been on about just the importance of emotional intelligence and really uh, looking at our emotions as not good or bad, but really as data points for us. So, you know, just give a little bit of your perspective on how important emotional intelligence is and and where we can use it. Yeah. So we, it, it's fascinating because we, we sort of, when we talk about emotional intelligence, we always talk about it in, about engaging our emotional intelligence. So, you know, we talk about situations that we've been in and we talk about, um, you know, experiences that we've had or relationships. But the truth is, is that our emotional intelligence is with us all the time. It's working right now. You know, if I'm honest, then there's a little, there's a little track in my head that's going on in the background, which is around, you know, is this interesting? Are people listening? You know, and it, we can't stop that voice inside our head. And so emotional intelligence is about, you know, understanding what's going on for us, listening to that voice inside our head, making sense of it. I love that idea of data points. So for example, you know, there's this sort of idea that, you know, we engage our emotional intelligence when in fact it's always there. So if we accept it's always there, then we just have to begin to understand what's going on for us, what our reactions are, what the prompts are. You know, one of the fascinating things about emotional intelligence is that it's very easy to be healthily emotionally intelligent when things are good and things are easy. Um, You know, for example, you know, as I go about my day-to-day activities, obviously I try and be very mindful of my emotional intelligence and how I interact with people. You know, I was on the phone with the bank this morning. I'm sure everybody's had that experience. And, you know, it's the, by the time they handed me to the fifth person, I'm starting to get a little bit, um, you know, frustrated, perturbed. And, you know, it's easy and I can feel it coming up inside of me. Right? I can feel that sort of emotion coming up inside of me. And so when you get handed off to that fifth person, the fifth person says, you're talking to the right person, which all four people had said before that. I was like, are you sure about that? Am I talking? And so regulating your emotional reactions and and sort of understanding, okay, I'm beginning to get annoyed. So now I have to be even more conscious of what I'm saying and how I'm interacting and how I'm behaving. And so instead of, you know, saying, you know, this is ridiculous. I can't believe it. You say, you know, I'm getting a bit frustrated. This is the fifth fifth conversation I've had now, and you sort of engage it in that way. But but it's always there. It's like run. It's like a backtrack, backing track running in your brain the whole time. And I think what's really fascinating to me is that emotional intelligence is a whole life concept. And a lot of the work I do is around leadership and leadership development. So related to organizations. But using emotional intelligence has allowed me to have healthier relationships with my wife, uh, better relationships with my friends, better relationships with, um, you know, my parents um, and all kinds of other things. So it really is something that permeates every every aspect of our day-to-day lives, I think. 
Oh, I could not agree more. And, you know, I think it is just fascinating. I love the way that you put it, that our emotional intelligence really is this backtrack running in our brain all of the time. And your example of the fifth or maybe 10th person you've been passed to when you're trying to get to customer service at any company, I mean, by the time you do get to the right person, you're ready to explode on them. You know, I feel sorry for the last person that we all talked to, unless we really are paying attention and regulating, like you said, regulating Mm -hmm. our reactions. Um, And so that really brings me to another part of what you do and these certifications that you hold. One of them, Drew, is centered around risk. And I think that emotional intelligence definitely is that backtrack. It's this foundation. It really carries us forward with some of the choices that we make. And so I am fascinated um, to know more about your knowledge around risk and, and risk taking and how this comes about, how it plays out in our life and our careers. Because, you know, I think most of us have heard the greater the risk, the greater the reward. However, so many people are afraid of risk. Um, And, you know, I'm just really interested to know, you know, how do you measure this? And can this be um, a, a learned skill? So tell me a little bit about this assessment that you give. Yeah. And, and so I think the correct phrase is the greater the risk, the greater the potential reward. Because oh, the greater the risk, yeah. the great yeah, the greater the risk, the greater reward in, infers that there's a guarantee. Um so so what, you know, if we think about risk, so what is risk? What is risky? So um, you know, jumping out of a plane without a parachute is actually not very risky. You, you are you, the outcome is certain. You know, in, in with you know, there might be a very infinitesimal chance of surviving, but basically, you know, if you jump out of a plane w- without a parachute, you're probably gonna it's not going to end well. No. So that's not actually risky. So people would say, well, that sounds risky. Well, no, it's actually certain. Jumping out of a plane with a parachute is risky. Nowhere near as risky as most people think it is. It's actually, you know, uh, skydiving is actually quite a safe activity. Um, I think I read something that, you know, crossing the road is actually more dangerous than skydiving because we misunderstand a lot of risk. Yeah, we misunderstand a lot of things about risk. But we know that there are psychological underpinnings to it. So um, the work of a company from the UK called Psychological Consultancy, they developed a tool called the Risk Type Compass. And it draws on one of the most established of the psychological models, which is called the five-factor model of uh, of psychology. So the five-factor model measures things like some of the the wording in the five-factor model isn't particularly um, broadly acceptable. For example, one of the scales that we measure in the five-factor model is neuroticism. Now, nobody wants to be called neurotic. Right. So, you know, then that's why, you know, in day to day life, the five factor model isn't exactly popular. But, you know, if you think about it, somebody who scores higher on neuroticism worries about the outcomes of things a great deal. Mm. Somebody that scores lower on neuroticism 
doesn't care so much about the outcome. So now we've got a simple scale that we can use. And if we can ask people questions and we can do some investigation, we can figure out whether they're more, and again, I'm just going to use the terminology, more neurotic or less neurotic. Now, consider we have another scale, which is the openness to experience. That's another one of the scales in the five-factor model. Now, some people are very open to new experiences. They want to try new things. They want to do new things. And other people are less open to new experiences. And we go on like this. I mean, I won't go through all the scales because obviously without a diagram, it's hard. But, you know, we have this, you know, we have agreeable agreeableness as well. Like some people, you know, want to be, you know, agreeable. They want to go along with things and, and so on and so on and so on. And so we can measure these things. We can take a combination of them and we can say, okay, well, this person is very open to experience. That's good. That's a, that's a high risk taking behavior. But they're also very worrisome. They, but they're concerned about the outcome. So they're highly neurotic. Well, what does that combination give you? It gives you somebody that wants to try new things, but wants to make sure that they are eliminating risk as much as possible. So, for example, if I'm going to go skydiving, I'm going to keep using this as an example, and there are five skydiving companies, if I was low neurotic, high open to experience, I'd like, you know, go on the internet, whichever one is the first one, I'd just pick that one. But if I'm high openness to experience and high neurotic, I'm going to review this, you know, see who's got the most five-star reviews. Have any of them ever had any bad accidents? And I'm going to go through the process. So we can really understand our own psychological underpinnings and bring that into the lens of how am I likely to make risks, right? How am I, how, how risk open am I likely to be? Yeah, I, I am, I'm just fascinated by this because I'm sitting here even thinking about myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know where I would fall on a lot of this and I'm glad Jim is not with us, my husband, because <laughs> he would probably tell you if I was neurotic or not. Well, it actually it, but it it's really interesting to me, and I'm curious. And of course, the whole skydiving example, jumping out of a plane without a parachute is not risky. I've never even had that paradigm before, but you're spot on because the outcome really is a guarantee. And so I guess the risky part comes when you don't always know the outcome. And I'm curious, as you have worked with people and leaders and teams, you know, what is what is kind of and I don't know if there's a real answer to this, but is there a formula for people and, you know, their success factor or their effectiveness? Let me use the word effectiveness factor when it comes to where they are in their risk taking ability. Mm. And I know I'm using wrong verbiage. No, that, that, that's slightly okay. So it gets very complicated at, at some point. So I'll add one thing in and then we'll talk about sort of team composition. So one of the strange things about risk is that we actually have different levels of risk tolerance in different areas of our lives. And I'll give you a personal example because obviously that's the only personal experience I can draw on is that, so for example, um, I, I drive a motorcycle, which my wife absolutely hates. Um, I scuba dive. I hate that too. Yeah, I scuba dive. Um, you know, I enjoy surfing. You know, I like doing sort of risky, you know, what could be considered to some people risky air recreational pursuits. But if there's a pot of, if there's a dairy product, yogurt, as we would say in England, 
I know you say yogurt. If there's a pot of yogurt that is at its sell-by date in the fridge, I will not eat that, right? So when it comes to some things, like will I eat a dairy product that's a day out of date? I won't do that. But if somebody okay, says, you know. Drew, I'm laughing because you will ride a motorcycle and scuba dive where there are sharks and things, but you won't eat out-of-date yogurt. <laughs> Exactly. Now, statistically, I would suggest that more people get sick from eating yogurt that's out of date, probably not as bad as outcome as being attacked by a shark. But anyway, now, but there's other there's other domains that people change their behavior in as well, for example, financially. So financially, I'm quite risk averse. I like nice, safe investments. But then socially, I'm very risk tolerant. You know, I walk into a room of people, I'm naturally extroverted. So I walk up to somebody I don't know and say hello. And so, you know, you've got this different, these strange variations in different domains of uh, recreation, financial health and safety. Um, so, so now you've got, so it's not as simple as saying this person is risk tolerant and this person isn't risk tolerant. Now you've got this person's risk tolerant in this domain, but not in this one. Now, translate that into a group or a team, and you've got seven people, all who have differing risk dispositions, all in different domains of their practice. And, you know, now you put them and you say to them, here's a work task that you need to collaboratively and collegially work on. And everybody's looking at it thinking, this seems really risky to me. And the person next to them is thinking, this is really interesting. I love this. Let's get to it. And then somebody else is saying, oh, this was quite scary. We need more information before we can move forward. And there you have the beginning of, you know, some of the opportunities and challenges of team functioning. Because here's the thing, you know, a group of seven or eight people, it's actually really useful to have a couple of people that are saying, okay, let's slow down a little bit, right? Are we thinking this through? It's also really useful to have a couple of people that are saying, you know, we should get to this, we should get going. Because then you get that balance. And there's quite a bit of research that's been done, you know, not just within different industries, but also within teams where, there is something to be said for having a balance of personalities. Now, of course, the problem with the balance of personalities is that that person who really wants to go and get on with it and doesn't understand why we're still talking about it gets really frustrated by the person trying to slow the process down and vice versa. And so understanding, and this is, of course, where we begin to drift back towards the emotional intelligence construct, areas like interpersonal relationships and empathy, which are so important to group functioning. That is really amazing to me to hear the the risk tolerance of people and the domains within those areas. Like you said, you know, financially, you don't want to take a risk, but socially, you will go up and talk to anyone and interact with them. And I think it's important for people to realize that, that just because maybe you play it a little safer in one area, it doesn't put you in some label or a box that you know you're you're too safe you're too cautious yeah. right because there's yep. so many facets to human beings and we do adapt a little bit right depending on what we prefer and where we are comfortable and and I love that you really you corrected the phrase for me the greater the risk the greater re- the reward because that sets an unrealistic expectation right yeah. and that's the way I've heard it but I love, love that the greater the risk the greater the potential reward 
I'm mm-hmm. gonna definitely start saying it that way, Drew. So let me just ask you this because you shared a little bit about you know your risk factors or, or risk yep. tolerance. What is a really risky decision that you have made and that potential reward ended up being there? It was a good outcome. Can yeah. you share one? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So I I had a very good corporate job back in 2012. And um and I decided that I didn't want to keep doing the corporate job. So I left without having another job to go to. So I was, I was determined that I was going to start my own business. But of course, starting a business is is a pretty risky proposition at the best of times. Um, so that's a, that's a good example of, um, you know, sort of a risk tolerance. But again, it fits with my category because building a business is about being, you know, going out and meeting people, which is to me not really risky. Um, the other thing, of course, is that, you know, I had the support of my uh, wife. And so you could, you know, that was easier to work. That You know, it's easier to take risks if you've got somebody else, you know, able to back you up if you need it. Um, and it's funny how things work out because, you know, I went to talk to my boss and I said, it was so funny because I went to talk to her and I said, um, do you have a few minutes? And she said, yeah. And I said, I've got something I need to talk to you about. And she said, oh, I have something I need to talk to you about. And I said, okay, would you want to go first? And she said, yeah, I'm going to quit. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Um, okay. She's like, so anyway, what's your news? <laughs> and of course then I said, and I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to back away from it. And, uh, and, 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 you know, this, this, uh, this lady and I are still very, very good friends and she actually offered me work. So she said, I'm going to go work in this other place and I can offer you some work if you want it. And so, you know, I didn't have to live in that risk space for very long. I was very fortunate. Um, you know, back in like 1996, I was working as a, as a network engineer and I went on a training course and I met a guy on the training course who, was just just a brilliant engaging you know thriving individual i just you know found it very captivating and i was watching him do what he wanted to do you know teach the course and i just decided that's what i want to do i want to become a trainer i want to teach other people how to do this work and i remember going home and uh you know talking to my wife and i said yeah i think i found what i want to do today i want to be a an educator i want to be a trainer and and the pay cut was going to be 75% So the difference between the job I had and becoming a junior trainer for this technology company would have resulted, did result in a 75% pay cut. And so that was risky. But again, you know, it fits in my category of, you know, social interaction, you know, there was a drive to it. The big risk in that one was the financial element. And of course, so that was what kept me awake at night because I don't like financial risk very much. No, I'm not the one out there buying, you know, uh, uh, cryptocurrencies and, you know, precious metals because it's just too risky for me. You know, give me a guaranteed investment certificate or something any day of the week. Yeah. And thank you so much for sharing that because I was sitting here thinking as you were talking about that risk you took and the pay cut that came with Mm. that. I was thinking he already shared he doesn't like financial risks. So, that was the scary part. You know, and I think it's a, a a key part that you mentioned, the support of your wife and, you know, having that encouragement from people that love you. It does kind of give you courage to move forward. I always say that knowing you are loved really gives you strength and um 
I think that that's another part of our emotional intelligence. Like you mentioned, it all really is so interweaved, but having the right people around you uh, when you are thinking about these risks and having honest people around you. Um, so that's that's really an inspiring story that you you went out there and you did it. And, you know, I was thinking, I have been hearing lately more and more and seeing, you know, different posts on LinkedIn and things where people seem to be really going out there on their own, starting their own businesses. And, and to me, you know, taking that risk, because I'm right there with you. I, I took the risk of starting my own consulting business, but I feel like I'm seeing it a lot, even though in the economy in the U.S., we all know it's really not that great. And I just wonder, do you have any perspective or insights about what you're seeing going on just in the world and the the risks that people are taking with their own careers? Mm, yeah. I mean, one of the things that's that's interesting about the, the world of work in the last, let's say, 10 years, um, you know, technology-enabled working, so, you know, remote work, gig, gig economy, um, the idea that you can work for multiple contracts, multiple staff, you know, multiple companies at one time has really sort of opened up the whole paradigm of what does work mean. And so, for example, you know, on my team, we have people based in um, in Austin. We have people based in Chile. We have people based in Canada. And, and you can you can work that way. So the world is your market. So if you do have a, if you do have a marketable skill set, I think technology enables that. But I also think there's a real fundamental shift in. The, the nature of work in people's lives where we are reframing it. And this obviously, this isn't news, but, you know, people are reframing it as I need my work to fit in with the life that I want. Whereas I think that, you know, certainly, you know, when I entered the the work, the job market, you know, it was different. Like you, you do anything to get a job. And if you got a job, you kept it, you held on to it, you know, you, and this was why, you know, me stepping away from that um, engineering job into the instructional job seemed so risky at the time. And of course, I was I was young, so you know, there's an impetuousness that comes with youth. Um, one of the interesting things from the risk research is that as we get older, we tend to behave in a, a more risk averse manner. So we do tend to take less risks, and a lot of that's got to do with the amount of runway that you've got. And so, you know, younger people looking at their lives thinking, I don't want to do a two hour commute and I don't want to work in an office doing a job I don't really like when I can work from home for a company based in a different state or a different country earning good money. And if that doesn't work out, then there's many other jobs. Now, we can talk about elasticity of workforce. We can talk about, you know, demand for, you know, unemployment figures and unemployment numbers things tend to shift based on the economy. So we've experienced in the last few years, we had this paradigm shift to work from home, remote work through COVID. And now there's this sort of beginning, you know, this sort of shift or you know, back to the office. Um, but there's still a lot of people that look at those, those COVID years and say, I actually preferred that mode of living. I don't mean the pandemic. I don't mean COVID, but no commuting, working from my home office, being able to integrate my life more effectively with my work. And I think people, you know, just look at it differently now. Um, but there is a risk. There is a risk associated with it. 
but there's also a lot of support. Now, you know, it's interesting you said, you know, it's it's easy to take risks when um, you feel a lot of love and support around you. And that works in an organizational level as well as it does an individual level. If you work in an organization where you feel like the organization has your back, your manager cares about you, your coworkers and peers care about you, then it's easier to take risks. And similarly, if you're in an environment where you're constantly looking over your shoulder, worrying about, you know, whether you have a job next week and where the organization is going to be going, then you're less likely to take risks. So, you know, it's it's just a fascinating risk doesn't exist without context. So Mm. we're taking the, the person and we're putting them into an environment and then the environment is interplaying with their risk disposition. And so when you talk about it from a work perspective, we're taking an individual who may be risk tolerant and putting them into a situation where there are a million opportunities in a million different directions. So it probably feels pretty good to take some risk. You know? Yeah. 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 That is really, I'm fascinated by this whole topic and just, you know, the mindset around it. Um, Before we go to our first break, there was something that you said, and I think this is a a good place to let our listeners just kind of digest everything we've talked about so far. But you said that when you're in a playing to protect environment, that you actually are working and living in more of that defensive mode. And then when you're in that playing to win environment, like you just described, where there's love and support and opportunity and growth and really advocacy for your team, that's when people are really able and willing to take more risks. Mm -hmm. So, I really, I love that framework around it that you shared with me uh, off the show one time. So I think this is a really good place for us to take a short break. And when we come back, don't go anywhere because we're going to spend more time with Drew Bird and we're going to maybe move into some conversation about adaptability in our lives. So don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you ready to ignite your passion and purpose for life? Make sure you join Jan Jones each week for the Good Good Life podcast. Each week, Jan will share her expertise and insights into personal development as well as spiritual growth discoveries. From the challenges in the valleys to the victories on the mountaintops, Jan has persevered through all of them with unwavering faith and joy. Life is full of possibilities, and Jan wants to walk with you as you discover those possibilities and unleash your full potential. Rekindle the spark inside of you and rejoice in the good, good life with Jan Jones, where we will all love living and live loving. Become a member of VoiceAmerica.com. It's easy and best of all, it's free. Start out by going to our homepage or any of our channels and click register at the top. 
Once you've created an account and signed in, you can create your own custom library, opt into our newsletter, search by show, host, guest, or topic of interest, or browse millions of hours of content across all of our Voice America radio channels. Membership gets you more. Visit voiceamerica.com today to get started and tailor the listening experience to your taste. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Welcome back to The Good Good Life with Jan Jones. If you have a question or want to share your story with Jan or her guests, feel free to join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888 888- Three four six nine one four one. Now back to the show with Jan. Welcome back, everyone, to The Good Good Life. I am talking with Drew Bird today. He is just full of knowledge and insights on so many important areas of our life that really transfer to personal and professional. No matter where we need a little development, maybe a new paradigm shift, we are covering it today with Drew Bird. We've been talking so much about risk and the assessments behind that and really all the different domains and how this plays out in our life. And Drew even shared how it plays out in his own life. And, you know, we brought up the topic of adaptability and being able to adapt in different situations. Human beings, we do that naturally. But when we can really be intentional with some of these innate abilities that we have, I think it just makes our life and our relationships so much better and more positive. So all that being said... Drew, you are an expert in this adaptability model with the acronym of ACE, and that stands for Ability, Character, and Environment. And, you know, I really do agree with uh, what you and I have talked about and what I speak about with adaptability, what I've read about, that this is a key factor in really having a fulfilling life. And and like I said earlier, playing to win. So tell us a little bit about this model and uh, and we'll get into some more details about it. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting model created a couple of years ago by um, a company in the UK called AQAI. And um, the the creator of the model, um, two, two uh, guys, Ross Thornley and Mike Raven, Basically, we're looking for a way to understand, uh, help people understand adaptability. But what they found um, was that most measures of adaptability or willingness to adapt focused on sort of a single dimension. You know, you know, 
are you adaptable? Yes or no. I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, but it was very, very simple. What they what they landed on through their research was that there's there's these different ways that people look at adaptability and adapt. And so they created this three-dimensional model. And um there's the ability domain, and that looks at, for example, elements like grit and resilience. And so in the ability, it's like, you know, some people have a naturally high level of grit and other people have a naturally lower level of grit. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be, you can't develop grit. You can't develop, you can develop grit through learning, through experience, through a whole variety of, of mechanisms, but knowing where you are in grit is, is very useful. Equally, some people are more resilient than others. So resilience is our ability to bounce back from a challenging experience or a difficult time. And some people are naturally resilient and some people are less resilient. So again, we can explore that and develop more about it. There's also in the ability domain, an element which is called unlearning or unlearn. And I think that's the most fascinating one. And it's this yeah, idea. I, I, I got to interrupt a little because I saw that and I was like, okay, I want to know about this, this unlearning. Yeah. So I'm glad you're touching on it. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting because, you know, I was, um, uh, the, the idea that you have to let go of existing knowledge to let new information in. And, you know, this idea that, um the things that we know, sometimes we hold on to for too long. So a lot of the work I do, a lot of the work I do with leaders is around improving their leadership capability. And to do that, they've got to learn more about leadership. They've got to understand more about the basics of leadership. But really, a lot of leadership development is around understanding who you are as a person, understanding mm -hmm. what you're bringing. Sometimes in that discovery process, you find out things about yourself that are actually not positive. Okay. Um, and so you have to let that go. You have to you have to unlearn a certain way of behaving. I'll give you a really easy example. Um, this isn't going to come as a shock to anybody listening, but I like to talk. And, you know, when I was younger, my desire and my enjoyment of talking, and there was nothing malicious about it, I just really am very chatty. Um, you know, it meant that in group settings and group meetings, I would talk a lot. And it wasn't until somebody, you know, a very good mentor of mine said to me, you know, listen, you need to you need to manage how much talking you're doing. You're talking way too much. And, you know, at the time I was thinking, I thought I was just talking the same as everybody else. And they're like, no, you're talking like five times more, um, you know, and it, as is always the way with human beings, I overcompensated and was basically silent for the next three weeks. Um, and then eventually, you know, you find a level that works. But, you know, unlearning a way of being or something, you know, or a piece of knowledge is a really important part of development. Uh, I cannot relate to you at all about. No, I, I bet I you have no idea what I'm talking about, right? You have no idea. Yeah. So anyway, no um, idea what that feels like for someone to say, Jan, you talk too much. Um, yeah. But you know what? I really do love that you talk a lot because that makes you an incredible guest on a podcast. Well, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, but it's really like, interesting because, um, you know, we we've talked about EQ a little bit and that is you can measure your EQ. We mm -hmm. know we can measure our IQ, but I've never thought of measuring our adaptability, which is AQ. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is really, 
really useful for people to realize that there's so much out there that we can learn about ourselves. I mean, I say maturity is a lifelong process and learning is an everyday lifelong process. So I'm just soaking in everything that you're saying right now. You know, I, I love that word grit. And it's so interesting that this is part of the model. And I did not realize that this was part of the ACE model, but I had a guest a few weeks ago And she is a woman that has written a book that has a lot of stories and it's called Women of True Grit. And it is about this, you know, this ability to persevere and live through some really hard times. So I love, I love that ability part. And now let's move on to the C, that character um, part of this ACE model of adaptability. And, you know, there are things in here, and I'm just looking at it now, emotional range, extroversion, hope, motivational style, and thinking style. So let's hone in a little bit on hope because I love for people to feel hopeful and Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that, how it falls under the character category. So, yeah, so some people are sort of naturally optimistic. Let's use that word because everybody said about those words. Some people are naturally optimistic and therefore they're likely to be more naturally hopeful. And so, you know, the the idea of being, you know, optimism is one of those, you know, preferences that we have. Some people are less optimistic. We call them pessimists. But really, you know, if we're using a single linear scale, they're just less optimistic and more optimistic. And, you know, having a high level of hope, high level of optimism, things you you're confident that things will turn out right, that this could be a difficult, challenging time, but things are going to be okay in the end. Now, of course, what's interesting is that there's also a downside to a very high level of hope or optimism because you can have too much of it. You know, there's a there's a realism that also needs to be in there as well. And so for each of these scales in the character domain, you know, we we measure the character domain on sort of a double-ended scale. And so, you know, you can be, you know, all the way to the left visually, if you like, or all the way to the right visually, if you like. Um, People that spend their time in the middle of the scale tend to be more situationally adaptable. So these are people, you know, if they're, if you, let's say you've got somebody sort of in the middle of the hope scale, they're in a group of people and everybody's, you know, talking in very negative terms. They're the person that will turn around and say, oh, come on, it's not that bad. But similarly, yeah. if they're in a group of people where everybody's really excited and, you know, seem to be disregarding the risks, that's the person that could turn around and say, well, hold on a second. <laughs> you know, like we're not really, you know, thinking about this in a balanced way. So if you're in the middle, you have this, you know, situational use aspect, which is very useful. But most people do tend to one end of the scale or, or the other. And so, you know, around hope, it would be more or less hope. Whereas if we go back to the ability domain, it tends to be just more and less so, you know, sort of more linear. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, um, I, I, you know, when you do think about our adaptability ability, right? Yeah. <laughs> when we are in different situations and what do we do a little more instinctive? And to me, this is all incredible self-awareness mm-hmm. and, you know, how to use these things. You know, the last part of this model is all about environment. And I think that this is a really big 
topic of conversation when we talk about situations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of the categories that are listed here are company support, emotional health, team support, your work environment, and your work stress. Mm -hmm. And tell us how all of this really ties into our capability to be adaptable or just what we need to be aware of. Yeah, this was this was the part of the model that when I got introduced to it was actually the most interesting because the work around the ability and the character domain, um, you know, there's lots of good work around that. And, and um, you know, the AQ folks have found a way to measure that, which is very useful. But most of the assessments that are currently available for adaptability or change readiness, they miss out this um, this environmental component. And, you know, we can we can talk about some of the specifics, but we can sum up the Enviro domain quite simply, which is that you can take somebody who's very adaptable naturally and you can put them in an environment that really limits their ability to be adaptable. Mm. And conversely, you can take somebody who's not naturally very adaptable, but put them in a psychologically safe, healthy work environment where there's lots of support and they feel more willing to adapt. Now, um, things like, you know, there's there's often a contrast between things like team support and company support. So team support, that scale measures the degree to which you feel supported by the immediate group that you work with. And company support or organizational support, if you want, is, you know, the degree to which you think the organization more broadly, you know, has your back and is willing to support you. And there's often a really interesting gap. We often feel much safer within our team, but much less safe within the broader context. And so, of course, for organizations that are looking to create a, you know, an adaptable um, environment, they can sort of pay attention to that. But probably one of the most interesting scales in here is the work stress scale. Yeah. Now, you know, I'll speak for myself again, but I'm sure people can relate. If you are really stressed, if you're really feeling like you're stretched and you're pushed, you're not really interested in doing things different. What you're really interested in doing is doing things the same because you know what you can't deal with one more challenging thing and we've all had that experience where you know you feel like you're at the edge of your ability to you know cope with the situation and then the car breaks down requiring you to adapt and and that's it you know i just i don't you know what is it the young folks say i can't even Right. You know, it's like, I you can't know, it's even, too, yeah. I can't even, it's too much. Right. Just, and so, I can't even. yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, we all know that, you know, and there's an interesting, there's an interesting balance in most organizations. And, uh, you know, I'll say this next part a little bit tongue in cheek. You know, I speak to people quite frequently who work in organizations where the organization has an initiative or a program designed to help people manage their stress. And of course, the person in the organization is like, well, I wouldn't be stressed if you didn't keep giving me more work. So if you really want to manage my stress, then just try giving me less. But of course, you know, organizational imperatives, the way organizations work, businesses need to make money in order to survive. You know, it's not always possible to do that. But, you know, looking at, you know, work stress is such a predictor of people's ability and willingness to adapt. Um, that You know, if you were going to do, if you're, if you're running a business, um, and you were looking for one way of trying to help people be more adaptable, it would be to look at sources of stress. And of course, it's not always workload. That's always the easy one. Obviously, it's a very big one, primary. But a lot of it is things like the relationship with your supervisor or your boss, yeah. the relationship with your coworkers, 
um, absence of information, conflicting demands. You know, there's so many things. Oh, yeah, I agree. That is really insightful, Drew. Just to think about workload is the easiest, like low-hanging fruit to blame your work stress around. But there are so many different factors around our stress level. And, you know, you, you took the words right out of my mouth when I was thinking when you said the team support compared to company or organizational support. And in my consulting business, I see that there is usually a gap there. Um, And and like you said, if you would pay attention, you know, if the if the leaders would pay closer attention to the sources of the stress and not just think about it's just workload, workload. Right. Um, So many factors play into that. And and uh, I think it is really um, it's a little ironic that they give you all these programs to handle your stress, but yet people can't really get away from their job yeah. to go to the program yeah. <laughs> to yeah. take advantage of the great program. Yeah. <laughs> so it is, it's really, really interesting. Um, oh my goodness, Drew, we really have um, barely scratched the surface. I mean, this time has flown by with you and I'm just so grateful that you joined us today. So I just kind of want to end with um, a question that isn't about any specific model or area of expertise, but what is one lesson that you've learned throughout your career? And I know there's a lot of them, yep. but what's one that is really standing out to you that you think everyone should learn? What what would that be? And I know I'm totally putting you on the spot. No, that, yeah, that, that's fine. I think, you know, one of the most, there's, there's two quotes that I want to share with you. One is by Sigmund Freud. And uh, the quote is, the self that you know is hardly worth knowing. Okay, the self that you know is hardly worth knowing. I think everybody would do well to try and figure out, you know, how they're showing up with other people, what people are thinking, you know, you know, what's the impact that you're having? There is for most people, there is a gap between their intention and their impact, what they think they're how they think they're showing up and how they're actually showing up. And, you know, understanding as much as you can that gap, I think is really important. Yeah. The other quote. Yeah. Um, the other quote I, is, I think that is, I think that is so true. And, and I really appreciate you sharing that. And I just appreciate you joining us and, um, thank you listeners for being with us today. I hope that everyone does enjoy this good, good life where you can love living and live loving. We will see you next time. Thank you, Drew. Thanks, Jan. I really appreciate you inviting me on. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Good Good Life with Jan Jones. We hope today was meaningful for your personal journey. We'll be back next week. Until then, continue to love living and live loving.